A Prologue, Part Two of Snowdrift, A Story of the Land of the Strong Cold by James B. Hendricks. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Snowdrift by James B. Hendricks. A Prologue, Part Two. All night the storm roared unabated, and, as is the way of Arctic blizzards, the second day saw its fury increased. During the morning the four played whist. There had been no mention of gold, and old Molaire played his usual game with the result that when Nisaka called them to dinner, he and MacFarlane held a three-game lead over Downey and Margot. The meal over, they returned to the cards. The first game after dinner proved a close one, each side scoring the odd in turn, while the old Frenchman, as was his custom, analyzed each hand as the cards were being shuffled for the next deal. Finally he scored a point and tied the score. Then he glared at his son-in-law. "'And you'd have finessed your ten-spot through on my lead of hearts. We'd have made two points in game,' he frowned. "'How was I to know?' MacFarlane paused abruptly in the midst of his deal, and glanced in surprise toward the door which swung open to admit four Indians, who loosened the blankets that covered them from head to foot, and beat the snow from them as they advanced toward the stove. Three of them carried small packs of fur. The fourth was a young squaw, straight and lithe as a panther, and as she loosened the moss bag from her shoulders, a thin wail sounded from its interior. "'A baby!' cried Margot, as MacFarlane made his way to the counter, his eyes upon the packs of fur. She stooped and patted her own little one, who was rolling about upon a thick blanket spread on the floor. The squaw smiled, and, fumbling in the depths of the bag, drew forth a tiny red-brown mite, which ceased crying and stared stolidly at the cluster of strange white faces. "'What a terrible day for a baby to be out,' continued the white woman, as she pushed a chair near to the stove. Again the squaw smiled, and, seating herself, turned her back upon the occupants of the room and proceeded to nurse the tiny atom. Meanwhile, MacFarlane was trying by means of the Cree language to question the three bucks who stood in solemn line before the counter, each with his pack of fur before him. Downey tried them with the Blackfoot tongue and the jargon, while old Molaire and Tom Shirts added half a dozen dialects from nearer the bay. But no slightest flicker of comprehension crossed the face of any one of them. Presently the young squaw arose and placed her baby upon the blanket beside the white child, where the two little mites sat and stared at each other in owlish solemnity. As she advanced toward the counter, MacFarlane addressed her in Cree, and to the surprise of all she spoke to him in English. "'We buy food,' she said, indicating the packs of fur. "'Where did you come from?' queried the trader. And how is it that you talk English and the rest of them can't talk nothing? We come from far to the northward, she answered. I have been to school at the mission. 
These are dog ribs. They have not been to school. I am of the yellow knives. My man was drowned in a rapids. He was named Bontrouge. He was a dog rib, so I live with these. Why don't you trade at your own post? asked MacFarlane suspiciously. Is it because you have a debt there that you have not paid? No, we have no debt at any post. We are only a small band. We move about all the time. We do not like to stay in one place like the rest. We see many new rivers and many lakes, and we go to many places that the others do not know. We have no debt at any post. We trade as we go and pay with skins for what we buy. One of them wanderin' bands, observed Downey. I've run across two or three of them here and there. They camp a while somewheres, and then seems like they just naturally get restless and move on. The squaw nodded. The police is right. We do not like to stay and trap in one place. I have seen many new things, and many things that even the oldest man has not seen. MacFarlane opened the packs and examined their contents, fur by fur, laying them in separate piles, and paying for each as he appraised it in brass tokens of made beaver. The three bucks looked on in stolid indifference, but MacFarlane noted that the eyes of the squaw followed his every movement. As a general rule, the agents of the Hudson's Bay Company deal fairly with the Indians in the trading of the common or standard skins, and MacFarlane was no exception. It was in a spirit of fun, to see what the squaw would do, that he counted out thirty made beaver in payment for a large otter skin. The Indian woman shook her head. "'No, that is good otter. He is worth more.' and with a smile the Scotchman counted ten additional tokens into the pile, whereat the squaw nodded approval, and the trading proceeded. When at last it was finished, the squaw took entire charge of the purchasing, pausing only now and then to consult one of the other of the Indians in their own tongue, and in her selection of only the essentials, MacFarlane realized that he was dealing with that rarest of northern Indians, one who possessed sound common sense and the force of character to reject the useless trinkets so dear to the Indian heart. While the bucks were making up their packs, the squaw plunged her hand into the bottom of the moss bag from which she had taken the baby and drew out a single skin. For a long time she stood holding the skin in one hand, while with the other she stroked its softly gleaming surface. MacFarlane and Molaire gazed at the skin in fascination, while Margot rose from the blanket where she had been playing with the two babies, and even Corporal Downey, who knew little of skins, crowded close to feast his eyes on the jet-black pelt whose hairs gleamed with silver radiance. In all the forty years of his trading, Molaire had handled fewer than a dozen such skins, a true black fox taken in its prime, so that the silvered hairs seemed to emit a soft radiance of their own, a skin to remember and to talk about. 
Then the squaw handed the pelt to McFarlane and smiled faintly as she watched the trader examine it almost hair by hair. "'Where did you get it?' he asked. "'I trapped it far to the northward, in the barren grounds, upon a river that has no name. It is a good skin.' "'Did you trap it yourself?' "'Yes. I am a good trapper. My man was a good trapper, and he showed me how.' these are good trappers too she indicated the three indians and all the rest who are with us there are thirty of us counting the women and children but we have not had good luck that is all the fur we have caught she pointed to the skins mcfarlane had just bought those and the little black fox when the storm stops we will go again into the barren grounds and we must have food, or, if we have bad luck again, some of us will die. "'Why do you go to the barren grounds?' asked MacFarlane. "'The trappin' is better to the eastward or to the westward.' The squaw shrugged. "'My man, he has been to school a little, but mostly he had worked far to the westward along the coast of the sea, among the white men who dig for gold.' and he heard men talk of the gold that lies in the barren grounds and northward to the coast of the frozen sea. So he went back to the country of his people, far up on the Mackenzie, and he told the men of the gold and how it was worth many times more than the fur. But the old men would not believe him, and many of the young men would not, but some of them did, and these he persuaded to go with him and hunt for the gold. It was when they were crossing through the country of my people that I saw him and he saw me and we were married. That was two years ago, and since then we have traveled far and have seen many things. Then my husband was drowned in a rapids, and I have taken his place. I will not go back to my people. They were very angry when I married Bontrouge, for the yellow knives hate the dog ribs. Even if they were not angry, I would not go back, for my husband said there is gold in the barren grounds. He did not lie, so we will go and get the gold. "'There's your chance, Mac,' grinned Corporal Downey. "'You better throw in with them and get in on the ground floor.' But MacFarlane did not smile. Instead, he spoke gravely to the woman. "'And have you found any gold in the barrens?' The squaw shrugged and glanced down at the babies. When she looked up again, her eyes were upon the little fox skin. "'How much?' she asked. MacFarlane considered. Holding the pelt, he stroked its glossy surface with his hand. Here was a skin of great value. He had heard many traders and factors boast of the black, and the silver-gray fox skins they had bought at ridiculously low price, and they were men who did not hesitate to give full value for the common run of skins. Always, with the traders, the sight of a rare skin arouses a desire to obtain it, and to obtain it at the lowest possible figure, and MacFarlane was a trader. He fixed upon a price in his mind. He raised his eyes, but the squaw was not looking at him, 
and he followed her glance to the blanket where the two babies, the red baby and the white baby, his own baby and Margot's, were touching each other gravely with fat, pudgy hands. He opened his lips to mention the price, but closed them again as a new train of thought flashed through his mind. How nearly this woman's case paralleled his own! The imagination of each was fired by the lure of gold, and both were scoffed at by their people for daring to believe that there was still gold in the earth to be had for the taking. Then there was the matter of the babies. When finally MacFarlane spoke, it was to mention a sum three times larger than the one he had fixed upon in his mind, a sum that caused old Molaire to snort and sputter and to stomp angrily up and down the room. The squaw nodded gravely. "'You are a good man,' she said simply. "'You have dealt fairly.' Sometime maybe you will know that Wananabish does not forget. Two hours later, when the price of the pelt had been paid and the supplies all made into packs and carried to the toboggans that had been left before the door, the Indians wrapped their blankets about them and prepared to depart. As the Indian woman wrapped the baby in warm woolens, Margot urged her to remain until the storm subsided but the woman declined with a smile. No, these are my people. I will go with them. Where one goes, all go. But the baby! There is a terrible storm to take a baby into. The baby is warm. She does not know that it storms. She is one of us. Where we go, she goes too. As the Indians filed through the door into the whirling white smother, the young squaw stepped to the counter for a last look at her black fox skin. She raised it in her hand, drew it slowly across her cheek, stroked it softly, and then returned it to the counter, taking deliberate care to lay it by itself apart from the other skins. Then she turned and was swallowed up in the storm as MacFarlane closed the door behind her. "'You could have bought it for half the price,' growled old Molaire as his son-in-law returned to the card table. "'Aye,' answered the younger man as he resumed his cards. "'But the company has still a good margin of profit. They're heading for the barons, and if, as she said, they have bad luck, some of them would die. And you know who would be the first to go. It would be the babies. I'm glad I'd done as I did. I'll sleep better nights. And I'm glad, too, added Margot, as she reached over and patted her husband's hand. And so is Papa, way down in his heart. But he loves to have people think he is a cross old bear, and bears must growl. Corporal Downey grinned at the twinkle that appeared in old Molaire's eyes, and the game proceeded until Nasika called them to supper. MacFarlane paused at the counter and raised the foxskin to the light, and as he did so a very small heavy object rolled from its soft folds and thudded upon the boards. Slowly MacFarlane laid down the skin and, picking up the object, 
carried it close under the swinging lamp where he held it in his open palm curiously the others crowded about and stared at the dull yellow lump scarcely larger than the two halves of a split pea for a long moment there was silence and then mcfarlane turned to corporal downey what was it you said he asked about sticking to my job until i saw an engine with some gold end of a prologue part 2 recording by roger moline